Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. In this seventh episode of our series, Exploring the Civil War in the Shoals and the Tennessee Valley, the second episode discussing the Battle of Shiloh, we will explore the events of the battle itself, which took place over the course of two consecutive days. This episode will discuss the first day of the battle, April 6th, 1862. The subsequent episode will discuss the second day of the battle and its immediate aftermath here in the Tennessee Valley. In terms of total combined casualties, Shiloh was the largest, most significant battle the war had seen so far. What's more, at the time, it was the largest single military engagement in the recorded history of North America. More Americans were killed in 48 hours at Shiloh than the entire War of 1812. Twice as many were killed in these two days than during the Mexican-American War, which lasted two years. Its significance in the progress of the war and in the American mindset of the time is not easy to overstate. Considering the mountain of information I have gathered to present on the topic, I could really make an entire series just on the battle itself. But I have decided to discuss the events of this two-day battle over two episodes, in addition to the episode I have already published, which discussed the lead-up to the battle. Between official military reports, newspaper reports, and memoirs of the participants published after the war, there is a staggering amount of information to process. There are 229 separate reports from the Battle of Shiloh found in Volume 10, Part 1 of the official records, from top to bottom, right on down the entire chain of military command, from both the Federals and the Confederates. My collection of excerpts from these first-hand eyewitness accounts amounted to more than 90 pages and over 41,000 words. These eyewitnesses report minute-by-minute minute details of the two days' fighting, and eloquently capture the desperate, dramatic, and bloody nature of the struggle. Obviously, I could not possibly present every word of every excerpt I collected. Instead, my goal is to offer the most interesting and illustrative highlights to try and recreate the experience of the battle from the many different witnesses who were there, as vividly as it would have been to a person who was present and witnessed it, while also explaining the events as they unfolded. As I have said before, it is my view that the best way to relive the experience of the past is to hear it from the words of those people who were the eyewitnesses of the events themselves. And for this reason, I will read an unabridged selection of reports from the battle in a supplement to this episode, which I will post later. I will also include a link in the description of this episode to the document with all of the quotations I gathered, so that you can read for yourself, if you're interested, the fascinating and detailed accounts of this battle. Of course, if you really want to dive off the historical deep end, you can read the reports yourself, starting on page 98 of Volume 10, Part 1 of the Official Records. Before I begin, first of all, please allow me to mention here. One of my goals at the outset of this series was to highlight, wherever possible, the role of African Americans and women in the Tennessee Valley during the war, because they were not passive spectators, but active participants. That being said, in examining more than 200 official reports of the battle, I found no explicit mention of either women or African Americans in this particular battle. Circumstantial evidence for their participation, however, does exist. 
For example, we know already that the Confederates impressed enslaved African Americans to labor on the fortifications at Fort Henry and Fort Heinlein, downstream of the battle at Shiloh. They were therefore present in Confederate outfits at the time and in the region, their labor being exploited for the benefit of the Confederate war effort. Other evidence shows that African Americans were employed as teamsters and other types of manual laborers in Confederate regiments for the duration of the war. It is therefore highly likely that African Americans would have been present in the battle in these indispensable ancillary roles. And while the Federal Army did not begin accepting and arming black recruits until 1863, already from the beginning, wherever the Union Army went, African Americans escaped bondage to secure their freedom by joining the Federal camps, often taking on similar ancillary roles. They were referred to as contraband. It is also highly likely, therefore, that some of these so-called contrabands were also present on the Union side. Additionally. Other evidence from the area later in the war shows how women, wherever there was a large troop presence, not only suffered material hardship under the crushing burden of such occupation, but also found themselves performing makeshift medical and nursing roles as battles and skirmishes took place near their homes. As the reports from Shiloh do explicitly mention farms and houses in the thickest of the fighting of April 6th and 7th, it is highly likely as well that ordinary women in the vicinity were called upon to administer to the needs of the wounded and dying around their doorsteps. The reports do not expressly mention such examples, although we can deduce that they must have been present. If anything, the utter absence of any mention of women or African Americans from these reports is telling in and of itself. Later in the war, we will encounter numerous examples of heroism and sacrifice by these demographics. For now, I ask that you bear with me as we examine what was written by and for an audience that was, admittedly, both white and male. Now, on to the battle. You will remember last time, we learned how early in the spring of 1862, as the Confederates retreated from Middle Tennessee following the fall of Forts Henry and Donelson and their abandonment of Nashville, the shoals of the Tennessee River and the Memphis and Charleston Railroad near its banks became the subject of discussion on both sides as a target of either defense or offense. As Confederates sought to shore up their defenses of the Memphis and Charleston, the so-called vertebrae of the Confederacy, Union commanders briefly considered Florence as a place from which to strike a blow and wrest control of the railroad. By March 1862, however, it was decided that Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee, just upstream from Savannah, approximately 50 miles from the Shoals, would be the location where Union forces would gather to strike the railroad at the critical junction of Corinth, Mississippi, where the Confederates themselves were massing for a preemptive attack to reverse their losses in Tennessee. The Confederate presence at Corinth and Eastport, Mississippi, on the Tennessee River, compelled the Federal forces to make their landing downriver of that point. Major General Ulysses S. Grant, who had very recently been promoted from Brigadier General and risen to national stardom for his victories at Forts Henry and Donelson, was in command of Federal forces on the Tennessee, and was himself under the watchful command of Major General Henry Halleck in distant St. Louis. 
Confederate General Hardy provided an excellent summary of the situation on the Tennessee River in spring 1862. Quote, After the fall of Fort Donelson, the commanding general, Albert Sidney Johnston, having successfully achieved his retreat through Tennessee amid many difficulties, rapidly concentrated all his remaining forces at Corinth for the purpose of inflicting a decisive blow upon the enemy. The position was important from being the center of railroad communications passing southwardly from the Ohio River through western Tennessee to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Mississippi River eastwardly to the Atlantic. Marshes and muddy streams in this vicinity rendered it difficult to approach and make it strong and defensible. The enemy, flushed with their recent success, moved forward to conquer the territory on the left of the Mississippi. Large forces were transported on steamers, convoyed by ironclad gunboats under the command of General Grant to Pittsburgh, while an army under General Buell, commanding the remaining forces of the United States in the West, moved from Nashville through Columbia by land to effect a junction with General Grant. General Johnston, having received information of these movements, resolved at once to defeat or dislodge General Grant before the arrival of the forces under General Buell. On Thursday, April 3rd, the Army of the Mississippi was ordered to advance from Corinth towards Shiloh, a little country church near Pittsburgh, around which the forces of General Grant were encamped. End quote. As March turned to April, the skirmishing along the intersection between these two great converging armies was heating up, like tremors before a volcanic eruption, a small sign of greater trouble soon to come. By early in April, Federal forces under Brigadier General William Tecumseh Sherman had begun skirmishing with advanced guards of Confederates on the road between Shiloh Church, his headquarters, and the Confederate stronghold of Corinth, some twenty miles distant. Meanwhile, Grant continued anxiously waiting for Don Carlos Buell to arrive overland from Nashville with his Army of the Ohio to provide the reinforcements Grant required to launch an assault on the Confederates massing at Corinth. This brings us to the Battle of Shiloh. Unfortunately, there is no account in the Florence Gazette of the Battle of Shiloh, the largest battle to take place within 50 miles of the Shoals, because less than two weeks before the battle, on the 26th of March, the editors decided to suspend publication, quote, in consequence of the present state of affairs which has so affected our business, end quote, and said they hoped in a short time to, quote, go into the service of the Southern Confederacy to assist in defending our country against the unprincipled invaders of our soil, to prevent the subjugation of our people and the ruination and desolation of our beautiful and beloved, but now depressed, invaded, and struggling, sunny South." End quote. The final issue of the Gazette reports that martial law had been declared in town on Friday morning, March 21st, and a man just in from Columbia, Tennessee, reported the Federals had not yet crossed Duck River, but were stuck building a bridge before they could cross. He believed, quote, by what he could learn of their movements, they intended marching through the country east of here and get possession of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, say, at Decatur or Huntsville, end quote. The paper also reported, quote, We judge from what we can learn that a battle may soon be expected near Corinth, Mississippi, end quote. 
as the hostilities heated up around the shoals, impacting their lives more and more directly, the citizens were clearly fixated on the unfolding events with an anxious and eager curiosity, and not at all unaware of the showdown brewing in the region. Grant said in his memoirs he considered the Federal mission to be an offensive one, and had no idea that the Confederates would be the ones to launch an attack. Nevertheless, late in March, Brigadier General William Tecumseh Sherman had learned the Confederate position was too strong to break the line of the railroad without a large engagement, and he continued to order reconnoitering expeditions to keep the Confederates at his front under close supervision and scrutiny. General Grant was not alone in his assumption that the Federal presence in southern Tennessee was an offensive one. Sherman recalled in his own memoirs, quote, I always acted on the supposition that we were an invading army. We did not fortify our camps against an attack because we had no orders to do so, and because such a course would have made our raw men timid. The position was naturally strong, with Snake Creek on our right, a deep, bold stream with a confluent, Owl Creek, to our right front, and Lick Creek with a similar confluent on our left, thus narrowing the space over which we could be attacked to about a mile and a half or two miles." End quote. Sherman, owing to advanced position on the federal line, was perhaps in a better position than anyone to be aware of the growing strength of the rebel forces and their ultimate designs to attack the Federals, who themselves were massing on the banks of the Tennessee. Yet the assumption that they were an invading army on advantageous terrain, and the inexperience in general of the command at this early stage in the war, blinded him to the dangerous reality of their position, a position they made no efforts to fortify. Sherman continued, quote, At a later period in the war, we could have rendered this position impregnable in one night, but at this time we did not do it, and maybe it was well that we did not. From about the 1st of April, we were conscious that the rebel cavalry in our front was getting bolder and more saucy, end quote. Though he didn't know it yet, Sherman would emerge from the two days fighting at Shiloh as the man of the hour, subject of great acclaim and commendation from superiors for his courage and heroism, and a promotion to Major General. As late as April 3rd, Federal forces were still launching small expeditions downriver to try and determine whether they might stealthily break the Memphis and Charleston without risking a battle. On this final occasion, however, Grant concluded, quote, A battle will necessarily ensue at any point on the railroads touched. End quote. The Federal command, while they did anticipate a battle, as I mentioned, complacently, if not naively, expected they themselves would be the ones to say when and where it took place. By this time, however, unbeknownst to the Federal command, the Confederate army was already on the move, intent on driving the Federals into the Tennessee River. Confederate commander Pierre-Gustave Touton Beauregard, whom we met at the bombardment of Fort Sumter in Charleston, the first military engagement of the war, explained, quote, 
By a rapid and vigorous attack on General Grant, it was expected he would be beaten back to his transports at the river or captured in time to enable us to profit by the victory and remove to the rear all the stores and munitions that would fall into our hands in such an event before the arrival of General Buell's army on the scene. It was never contemplated, however, to retain the position thus gained and abandon Corinth, the strategic point of our campaign." End quote. The Confederates marched from Corinth on the 2nd of April with considerable zeal and initiative, and the added advantage of surprise. On the 4th of April, an advance of rebel cavalry captured eight Federal pickets from the 70th Ohio Infantry on the Corinth Road, less than two miles from Sherman's headquarters. Colonel Buckland and Sherman, who was at this time still a Brigadier General, ordered a hot pursuit in an attempt to rescue the captured pickets, though they were now in the midst of a severe thunderstorm. The Federal force then encountered rebel artillery and were compelled to fall back to their lines, but having taken ten prisoners of their own from the 1st Alabama Cavalry. Sherman said, quote, I supposed the guns that opened on the evening of Friday, April 4th, belonged to the cavalry that was hovering along our whole front. End quote. After the battle, Sherman explained, quote, On Friday, the 4th instant, the enemy's cavalry drove in our pickets, posted about a mile and a half in advance of my center on the main Corinth Road, capturing one first lieutenant and seven men that I caused a pursuit by the cavalry of my division, driving them back about five miles and killing many. On Saturday, the enemy's cavalry was again very bold, coming well down to our front, yet I did not believe that he designed anything but a strong demonstration." End quote. Sherman, despite being literally on the front lines, was thoroughly satisfied the day before the battle that the rebels only meant to show a strong demonstration, that when the two armies clashed, it would be the Union who went on the offensive, and they would replicate their great successes at Forts Henry and Donelson. Grant, at this time, still had his headquarters across the river and several miles downstream from Pittsburgh Landing at Savannah. General Buell was expected with his forces any day, and was directed to report for duty at Savannah. Grant says in his memoirs that, owing to the intensification of skirmishing around Pittsburgh Landing, he was spending the days there, and then returning to his headquarters once nightfall precluded any rebel offensive maneuvers. The same day the pickets were captured, April 4th, Grant was badly injured in his ankle when his horse fell on top of him. He credits the soft, muddy ground from the stormy spring weather for cushioning the blow, otherwise the injury would have been far worse. Grant recalled the night of April 4th. The night was one of impenetrable darkness, with rain pouring down in torrents. Nothing was visible to the eye except as revealed by the frequent flashes of lightning." End quote. Saturday, April 5th, seems to have been mostly quiet, except that the most advanced divisions of Buell's army finally arrived at Savannah, with Buell himself not expected until the next day. They would prove to be there not a moment too soon. For the Confederate command had originally selected April 5th as the date of attack. But, owing to the inclemency of the weather and the delay caused by a veritable traffic jam of artillery, baggage, and ammunition wagons, and tens of thousands of men marching over narrow, boggy roads, the attack had to be delayed until the next morning, Sunday, the 6th of April, 1862. 
All day Saturday, an enormous army of Confederates eagerly waited, ready to strike, only two miles from the unsuspecting Federal lines. The Confederates, despite their advantages, were also considerably weakened by a couple of factors. First, owing to their having been on the march for three days, and exposed without tents or shelter, through a sleepless night and a downpour held at readiness to move, they were already fatigued when the battle commenced before the dawn on April 6th. Additionally, enough regiments had apparently exhausted their provisions by Saturday the 5th that the command discussed returning to Corinth without launching an attack at all. Colonel John C. Moore of the 2nd Texas Infantry reports that, having marched from Houston, many of his men were either barefooted or in tattered shoes and had exhausted their rations. Nevertheless, the commanding general, Albert Sidney Johnston, determined, despite all objections, to press on with the attack, doubtless aware of the critically narrow opportunity to strike at Grant before Buell could arrive and reinforce him, when the Confederate numerical advantage would be lost, and the demoralizing effect on the troops if his army retreated without firing a shot. Albert Sidney Johnston at this time was the most prominent military officer in the Confederacy, which had yet to see the emergence of its later darling, the more famous Robert E. Lee. Johnston was born in Kentucky, but spent most of his long military career in the American Southwest, newly wrested from Mexico following the Mexican-American War. By the outbreak of war in 1861, Johnston was head of the military's Department of the Pacific, headquartered in San Francisco. By May 1861, he had moved to Los Angeles and joined a number of other rebel volunteers in the Los Angeles Mounted Rifles and proceeded east to join the war effort. It is quite curious to realize that in the divided nation at the eve of the war, there was even a Confederate regiment organized from Los Angeles, California. By September 1861, Johnston was in charge of Confederate forces in the Western Theater, which included virtually all of the Tennessee Valley. The fighting on Sunday, April 6th, began before sunrise. General Johnston's aide-de-camp, Colonel Preston, described the pastoral charm of the scene. Quote, the morning of the 6th of April was remarkably bright and beautiful. The country towards Shiloh was wooded, with small fields interspersed, and with bold undulations from the hills bounding the river. End quote. Colonel Jacob Thompson, aide-de-camp to General Beauregard, described as well the beauty of the dawn on what would be the bloodiest day America had ever known. Quote, the sky was without a cloud, and the sun rose in cheering brilliancy. End quote. Owing to the presence of rebel cavalry along the Federal lines and the skirmish on Saturday, the Federals were cautiously observing their front. According to Brigadier General Prentiss, commander of the 6th Division, who will be captured before the day is through, at 3 o'clock on the morning of Sunday, April 6th, Colonel David Moore, 21st Missouri, and five companies of his infantry regiment proceeded to the front, and at break of day the advanced pickets were driven in, whereupon Colonel Moore pushed forward and engaged the enemy's advance, commanded by General Hardy. At this stage, a messenger was sent to my headquarters, calling for the balance of the 21st Missouri, which was promptly sent forward. This information received, I at once ordered the entire force into line, and the remaining regiments of the 1st Brigade, commanded by Colonel Everett Peabody, were advanced well to the front. End quote. 
This was before 6 a.m. Conveniently, Prentice omitted the fact that he was furious with Peabody for having dispatched the companies in the first place, which discovered the rebel force, and swore he would hold him responsible for bringing on the engagement. Yet, Colonel Peabody, for ordering the pickets to go on reconnaissance, is credited with providing the Federal Army with advance notice of the oncoming rebel assault. Peabody, like so many others, now only had hours to live. Colonel Francis Quinn of the 12th Michigan said of him, quote, Colonel Peabody was killed in camp early in the day. He was a brave soldier and a good man, end quote. Quinn, like nearly all of the soldiers who drafted official reports, makes fond and affectionate honorable mentions in eulogizing the dead. Quinn offers a very telling description of the earliest moments of the battle and the slow realization that this was no small skirmish or demonstration. Quote, At three o'clock a.m. of that day, Sunday, several companies were ordered out from the 1st Brigade of this division to watch and endeavor, if possible, to capture a force of the enemy who were prowling near our camp. Our brave boys marched out and had not over three miles to go before they met the enemy, and immediately a sharp firing commenced, our little force giving ground. About daylight, the dead and wounded began to be brought in. The firing grew closer and closer until it became manifest. A heavy force of the enemy was upon us. Volley after volley was given and returned, and fell many on both sides. But their numbers were too heavy for our forces. I could see to the right and left. They were visible in line, and every hilltop in the rear was covered with them. It was manifest they were advancing not only one, but several lines of battle. End quote. Meanwhile, the commander of U.S. forces, U.S. Grant, was still some ten miles upriver at Savannah. Owing to the strategic importance of Pittsburgh Landing having eclipsed that of Savannah, he had already decided to move his headquarters there on Sunday the 6th. His headquarters was located on a steamboat called the Tigris, on which steam pressure was kept up continuously to facilitate departure at a moment's notice. Grant later recalled that, on Sunday, he intended to have an early breakfast and ride out to meet General Buell on the road in order to save time. But instead, on Sunday morning, a great deal of gunfire began to be heard in the direction of Pittsburgh Landing. Grant was eating breakfast in Savannah when the gunfire broke out. Leaving their breakfast unfinished, Grant and his staff immediately set off in the direction of Pittsburgh Landing, pausing only long enough to send word to Buell, explaining why he couldn't meet him in Savannah, and directing him to move his forces to the riverbank opposite Pittsburgh Landing. Despite the well-known fact of the rebel forces just miles from their own lines, it was not immediately clear to other Federal commanders on the scene that they were under attack. Don Carlos Buell observed, quote, The impression existed at Savannah that the firing was only an affair of outposts, the same thing having occurred for the two or three previous days. End quote. This is a very illuminating comment because one wonders how the army was caught so unprepared when there had been skirmishing for days prior to the full assault. Yet, in Buell's mindset, the skirmishing, if anything, made them less likely to regard the matter as serious. It let their guard down rather than heightening it. The complacency among the Federal Army meant that some of the earliest attempts to rouse and form the troops into lines of battle were met with incredulous skepticism and even refusals, even after gunfire was unmistakably heard in the vicinity of the Federal camps. 
Owing to the increasing tension along the front over the past two days, the Federals had loaded guns, which on Sunday morning were ordered to be cautiously discharged. Lieutenant Colonel Adolf Engelmann, 43rd Illinois, explained, quote, On Sunday morning, April 6th, at the request of Colonel J. Wright, I called upon Major General McClernand for permission to fire off the guns of our men, which were still loaded from the evening of April 4th, when the pieces had been loaded in expectation of an attack by the enemy. The permission was granted, but the general directed us that we should keep a sharp lookout for any engagement in front of us, and that, in case anything be heard, he instantly be informed of it. But two of our companies had discharged their guns when the colonel, hearing the distant report of firearms, ordering, ordered the firing to cease and the regiment to get ready for action, and also directed me to report the facts to General McClernand. The sluggish initial federal response to the attack early on Sunday morning and the horrifying losses which followed fueled accusations from Washington and in the press that the army had been taken by surprise. Halleck defensively concluded on May 2nd, quote, The newspaper accounts that our divisions were surprised are utterly false. Every division had notice of the enemy's approach hours before the battle commenced. End quote. When he made that statement, Halleck apparently did not have the words of John McHenry Jr., 17th Kentucky, in mind, who said, quote, My regiment was ordered into line early on Sunday, 6th instant, upon a sudden and unexpected attack which had been made upon our front lines by the enemy. End quote. This conflicts with General James McPherson's analysis of the federal situation on Sunday morning when he said, quote, It was well known the enemy was approaching our lines, and there had been more or less skirmishing for three days preceding the battle. End quote. While they were certainly complacent about the designs of the enemy, who were only a veritable stone's throw away, most of the Federal command was well aware that a massive Confederate force was gathered at Corinth, barely 20 miles from the Federal camps. Nevertheless, the earliest regiments to be engaged with the rebels on Sunday morning in many cases do not seem to have grasped the veracity of the attack until the rebels were quite literally already in their camps. The same Colonel Engelmann, who reported the incident with the firing off of the guns, recalled the skeptical response he met when trying to rouse troops in the earliest moments of the battle that Sunday morning. Quote, I proceeded to the encampment of the 49th Regiment Illinois Volunteers, which was some distance to our left, with orders for that regiment to turn out instantly, brisk firing being then heard within a short distance from its color line, but those from whom it proceeded still concealed by the forest. My orders to turn out were met by the inquiry, for what purpose? And to my response, that it was to meet the enemy which was engaged with our troops but a short distance in front, they said that the firing then heard was none other than our own men firing off their pieces. The infatuation that no enemy was about was so general that I was also to a great extent affected by it, and rode forward in the direction from which the firing proceeded to obtain certainty. Not more than two hundred yards in front of the 49th I came upon our own lines, then briskly engaged with the enemy. Hastening back to the 49th, I found that, as yet, little heed had been given to my previous orders to turn out. Upon communicating these facts to the officers, that regiment was speedily paraded, but only in time to find itself pressed hard in front and flanked on the left by vastly superior numbers of the Confederate Army." End quote. 
Lieutenant Colonel E.P. Wood of the 17th Illinois seems to have been quite unconcerned by the firing on Sunday morning. Quote, Early on the morning of the 6th of April, heavy firing was heard in our front, but thinking it proceeded from our pickets, very little attention was paid to it except to order the men to be ready to fall in at a moment's notice. About 7.30 a.m., notice came that we were really attacked. End quote. Colonel Joseph Cockrell of the 7th, 70th Ohio expressed how unaware the Federals were of the true scope of what was beginning to unfold. Quote, Our men, when called out on Sunday morning, supposed it was only to support the pickets, who had been in constant alarm for the two preceding days, and we never made any provision whatever for any retreat. End quote. Even Sherman reported that the scale and severity of what was happening was not immediately apparent to him. It wasn't until after the battle had been raging for two hours that he realized this wasn't just another strong demonstration. Quote, About 8 a.m., I saw the glistening bayonets of heavy masses of infantry to our left front in the woods beyond the small stream alluded to, and became satisfied for the first time that the enemy designed a determined attack on our whole camp. End quote. Soon, however, the growing proximity and frequency of gunfire became unmistakable. Generals Sherman and McClernand seemed to have been the earliest and most vigorous organizers of resistance on the Federal side, as the alarm was spreading through the Federal ranks and men were summoned to form their regiments to battle. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore how the Federals and Rebels both experienced great challenges, and the Confederates, after an enormous crippling blow, are compelled to end their assault just within sight of complete victory. Please stay with us. the overwhelming force of Confederates bore down upon the largely unexpecting Union army, the Federals were repeatedly forced to give up ground or find themselves surrounded by a superior Confederate force that was constantly turning their flank. Yet, notwithstanding the general regression of Federal forces, there are notable and numerous instances where Union soldiers stood their ground and made the Confederates pay dearly for every inch of ground they took. Colonel James Tuttle of the 2nd Iowa reports that his men repulsed four charges by the Confederates, holding their position for six hours until, finding that support on their flanks had retreated, they themselves were forced to retreat or be completely surrounded. Colonel Geddes of the 8th Iowa said his regiment held their position for nearly ten hours before being at last captured. Quote, we were now attacked on three sides by the rebel force, which was closing fast around us, the shells from our own gunboats in their transit, severing the limbs of trees, hurled them on my ranks." End quote. Both sides quickly, adaptively utilized improvisational and opportunistic tactics, taking advantage of the rough terrain and other features of the landscape. The official reports are replete with details about the terrain. Virtually every author makes some mention of the nature of the ground and the challenges or opportunities it afforded his regiment. Sherman reported that shortly after 10.30 a.m., he, 
quote, directed the men to avail themselves of every cover, trees, fallen timber, and a wooded valley to our right. We held this position for four long hours, sometimes gaining and at other times losing ground, General McClernand and myself acting in perfect concert and struggling to maintain this line, end quote. Federal forces took cover behind fences, trees, bushes, farmhouses, ravines, and the crests of hills. One Confederate, Captain Hodgson, even described how he saw Federals cut holes along the base of their tents just large enough for the muzzles of their guns to protrude from. And despite the stereotypical image of Civil War combat, where a large body of soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder slowly march across an open field only to be mowed down by an entrenched foe, such as Pickett's infamous charge at Gettysburg, both sides reported that on numerous instances they ordered their soldiers to lie flat on the ground to take cover from the enemy's barrage. Already running low on ammunition, Colonel John Logan of the 32nd Illinois, quote, frequently cautioned the men to lie flat on the ground, they being in range of the enemy's battery and trying to shell us out. I passed up and down the lines frequently, encouraging the men and telling them not to fire until they had the order and not unless they had good sight on a rebel, end quote. He concludes with an air of dark humor, Quote, at length, the enemy advanced in the open field, and the order to fire was given. The boys gave them such a dose of blue pills that they sickened at the stomach and changed their course. End quote. Colonel Cyrus Hall of the 14th Illinois said, quote, I ordered my men to lie down, conceal themselves as much as possible, and await orders. I gave the order to retire, which we did in rather bad order amid the confusion of the moment, but succeeded in rallying a part of my command in a ravine to the rear, where I found Major Foster rallying the 25th Indiana, end quote. And Lieutenant Colonel Strahl of the 4th Tennessee said, Quote, Our men here were ordered to fall flat on their faces in order to protect themselves from the enemy's fire. End quote. The scale of violence was certainly far beyond anything the participants had ever experienced, even the ones who were already veterans. Brigadier General Lauman, commanding the 3rd Brigade of the Federal 4th Division, described one particularly ghastly scene. Quote, I immediately ordered the left wing to move up to the fence, and as soon as they came in short range, open fired on them, which soon caused them to fall back. Their loss here and in the front was very heavy, the ground being literally covered with their dead. To add to the horrors of the scene, the woods caught fire, and dead and dying were soon enveloped in a general conflagration. End quote. Somehow, despite the ample recent rainfall, the sparks of ammunition had set the woods on fire, a hellscape and a nightmare indeed for the soldiers lying wounded on the field. Nor is it the only time in the Civil War that the woods would catch fire and doom unfortunate soldiers who were too wounded to flee. Most infamously, Grant's forces two years later at the Battle of the Wilderness will encounter the same fate. Colonel James Fagan of the 1st Arkansas Infantry, who has a uniquely poetic flair in his report, gives the following account of the fierce federal resistance which repulsed the attack of his regiment, and the role which terrain played in their success. Quote, 
Upon the edge of a wheat field, to the right of the field last mentioned, the regiment, with the whole brigade, was drawn up in line of battle, and marching directly to the front, across the field, entered a dense thicket of undergrowth, which led down to a ravine and to a hill beyond. Here we engaged the enemy three different times, and braved a perfect rain of bullets, shot, and shell, exposed, facing great odds, with the enemy in front and on the flank, the regiment endured a murderous fire until endurance ceased to be a virtue. Three different times did we go into that valley of death, and as often were forced back by overwhelming numbers entrenched in a strong position." that all was done that could possibly be done, the heaps of killed and wounded left there give ample evidence." The carnage was not limited to fire from the enemy. Then there were cases of mistaken identity. At this point in the war, there was a great deal of variation in uniforms, especially amongst the Confederates, and from a distance it was not always easy to tell to which side a regiment belonged. The Confederates especially seemed to have had the trouble of being fired upon from their own comrades, but the Federal Army experienced it as well. Sometimes the soldiers at this early point in the war were so untrained that they fired from the rear instead of at the front, which had a deadly effect on those standing in front of them. The drama of being fired upon by friend as well as foe amplified the desperate chaos of the battle. Colonel H. W. Allen of the 4th Louisiana recalled the terrible effect of receiving friendly fire. Quote, While drawn up in line of battle and awaiting orders, a Tennessee regiment, immediately in our rear, fired into us by mistake, killing and wounding a large number of my men. This was a terrible blow to the regiment, far more terrible than any inflicted by the enemy. It almost demoralized the regiment, who from that moment seemed to dread their friends much more than their enemies." End quote. Such instances greatly encumbered the rebel assault. According to Confederate Lieutenant Colonel T.H. Bell of the 12th Tennessee Regiment, quote, while engaging the enemy at this point, Colonel Campbell's 33rd Tennessee Regiment, mistaking us for the enemy, fired into us, causing great confusion among my men and causing them to fall back about 50 yards. End quote. Incidents of mistaken identity were not limited to the Confederate ranks. Major Ezra Taylor, Chief of Artillery for the Federal's 5th Division, recalled, quote, the enemy appeared in large force in the open field directly in front of the position of this battery, bearing aloft, as I supposed, the American flag, and their men and officers wearing uniforms so similar to ours that I hesitated to open fire on them until they passed into the woods and were followed by other troops who wore a uniform not to be mistaken. I afterward learned that the uniform jackets worn by these troops were black." Captain Kelly of the 15th Illinois said, quote, At last we took a position alone behind a fence. Here we could have done a good execution and maintained our position against superior numbers, but one of our own batteries, mistaking us for the enemy, opened fire upon us, wounding several men. End quote. Union commanders also mention the stars and stripes being used as a decoy by rebel forces, but it is likely the standard being carried merely resembled the Union flag. 
One reason the infamous Confederate battle flag became so widely adopted was that it was much more distinguishable from the stars and stripes than the similarly named and similar looking stars and bars. Part of the complacency on the morning of the attack, and some of the scenes of disorder which followed throughout the day, can be explained by the fact that many of the men were new to uniform and had never before fired a gun in combat. General Sherman explained, quote, My division was made up of regiments perfectly new, nearly all having received their muskets for the first time at Paducah. None of them had ever been under fire or beheld heavy columns of an enemy bearing down on them as they did on us last Sunday." End quote. Many commanders are exuberant with praise for their soldiers, often stating, quote, they fought like veterans. End quote. At least one report, that of Colonel Reed of the 15th Iowa, states that men of the command were learning to fire their weapons for the first time in combat on the morning of the battle. Confederate Major General Brexton Bragg also complained many of his men had never made a march before or done a day's labor. The Battle of Shiloh was a battle largely between unseasoned rookies, who for the first time were experiencing the horrors of modern warfare within the springtime woods of Tennessee. The Federal Army was not without its own advantages. Especially, the quality of its field artillery was generally regarded by the Confederate commanders as superior to their own. Captain Girardi of the Washington, Georgia Artillery remarked succinctly, quote, The Yankee ammunition is in capital order, especially the friction tubes, which are superior to ours. End quote. Major General Cheatham, commanding the Rebels' 2nd Division, remarked, quote, For nearly an hour the firing was kept up in the enemy's battery, superior to ours in the caliber and range of its guns. End quote. The Confederates, to achieve their strategic objective, would have to thoroughly rout the Federal Army, dislodging them from every line of defense, which the Federals selected. The Federal Army, on the other hand, merely had to withstand the assault long enough to receive fresh reinforcements and return the rebels to Corinth. Cheatham also recalled the bloody efficacy of the Federal utilization of features of the landscape to their advantage. After General Beauregard ordered him to seize a battery of Federal artillery, quote, I at once put the brigade in motion at double-quick time across the open field, about 300 yards in width, flanked on one side by a fence and dense thicket of forest trees and undergrowth. So soon as the brigade entered the field, the enemy opened upon us from his entire front a terrific fire of artillery and musketry, but failed altogether to check our movement until we reached the center of the field, when another part of the enemy's force, concealed and protected by the fence and thicket to our left, opened a murderous crossfire upon our lines, which caused my command to halt and return their fire. After a short time, I fell back to my original position. With General Breckinridge on my right, we together attacked the enemy, about 5,000 strong, admirably posted, and were actively and continuously engaged for three hours." End quote. Instances like this, where features like fences and wide-open fields became the modes of great slaughter, would repeat time and again throughout the war such as notably at Antietam, the bloodiest day in all of American history, later in the year, September 1862, at what forever after would be simply known as the Cornfield, and the infamous Stonewall at Fredericksburg. 
Colonel Hodge of the 19th Louisiana describes the deadly challenge posed by the Federals concealed within the dense and tangled undergrowth of Shiloh, and the desperate and often doomed rebel advance upon their position. Quote, we had advanced midway the little farm, which is about 150 yards in width, when the enemy, lying in ambush about 80 or 100 yards beyond the outer fence and directly in our front, opened fire upon our entire line. Owing to the impenetrable undergrowth between the enemy's position and ours, I was unable to see him, and from the manner of the men looking through the bushes, as if hunting an object for their aim, it was apparent that they too were unable to descry the concealed foe, and were only firing at the flash of the enemy's pieces. Seeing that my men were being rapidly shot down, and having no reason to believe that we were inflicting equal injury upon the enemy, I gave the order to cease firing and to charge bayonets. Officers and men alike obeyed the order promptly. So dense and impenetrable became the thicket of undergrowth that, after my men had boldly forced their way twenty or thirty steps into it, and it seeming impossible to make further progress, I again gave the order to commence firing. The regiment now gradually fell back to the fence. Finding that the enemy were now opening a crossfire upon us from our left, and seeing a large number of my small command killed and wounded, I deemed it my duty to order the regiment to fall back to the other side of the little farm." General Bragg, dissatisfied with this result, ordered him again to charge the Federal position, which his men did. But again, he was unable to dislodge the Federals, and was compelled to retreat. Colonel Hodge concluded, quote, It would, under the circumstances, have been madness to have kept my command there longer. End quote. Adding to the chaos and horrifying scenes of battle was the suffering of horses. Of course, at this time in the mid-19th century, horses and mules are the only means of transport over land where there are no railroad lines. In addition to armed cavalry units, horses carried wagons of stores and ammunitions, heavy artillery caissons, and the most senior-ranking officer commanders. As a result, scores of them were killed in the action at Shiloh and in each and every other major Civil War battle. It was widely reported and offered as proof of his valiance that General Sherman had three horses shot from under him while leading his troops. In summarizing the battle, General Grant concluded, quote, The loss of artillery was great, many pieces being disabled by the enemy's shots, and some losing all their horses and many men. There were probably not less than 200 horses killed, end quote. Captain Bankhead, chief artillery officer for the Confederates, reported 139 out of 347 of their horses were killed. Captain Lewis Kelly described the horrifying scene when artillery horses broke loose and fled in terror amid the gunfire. Quote, the battery gave way, part of the guns being taken by the enemy and the rest taken away by horses without riders who dashed through our ranks with great speed. End quote. Sterling Alexander Martin Wood, one-time editor of the Florence Gazette and scourge of Unionists in East Tennessee, who commanded the 3rd Brigade of Hardy's Corps at Shiloh, experienced a serious injury from the wounding of his horse. Quote, the fire was so close, and wounding my horse, he became wholly unmanageable and threw me, dragging me along the tents and disabling me for some three hours. End quote. 
Despite the setbacks and stubborn federal resistance, the Confederates were steadily driving the Union Army back upon the landing at Pittsburgh, where the Tennessee River cut off any further possibility of their retreat. Lieutenant General Hardy, exaggerating somewhat, described the relentless effectiveness of the Confederate advance. Quote, Nothing could be more brilliant than the attack. The fierce volleys of 100,000 muskets and the boom of 200 cannon receding steadily toward the river marked hour by hour from dawn until night our slow but ceaseless advance. The captured camps, rich in the spoils of war, in arms, horses, stores, munitions, and baggage, with throngs of prisoners moving to the rear, showed the headlong fury with which our men had crushed the columns of the foe. Quote. Their challenges, obstacles, and federal resistance notwithstanding, to the Confederates, they felt as if they were sweeping the field, and as the day progressed, it was hard to argue with their results. Grant, for his part, had been eagerly awaiting in vain for another division of his forces under Major General Lew Wallace to arrive from Crump's Landing and join the action. The addition of the new forces, he hoped, would stymie the rebel advance long enough for Buell's forces to take to the field and turn the tide. Earlier in the morning, between 7 and 7.30, as he was aboard the Tigress heading downriver to Pittsburgh Landing, Grant came alongside Wallace's headquarters boat at Crump's Landing and commanded him to have his forces ready to move at a moment's notice. Grant, at that point, thought the assault on Pittsburgh Landing could possibly be a diversion, and the real point of attack may be upon Wallace himself, cut off from the rest of the army at Crump's Landing. Once he arrived at Pittsburgh and determined the battle was meant there in earnest, he sent word via Captain Raleigh for Wallace to join him at once. Wallace, however, would prove to be the proverbial chickens not to be counted before they hatch. Raleigh soon returned to Grant and reported, astonishingly, that Wallace responded to his communication of Grant's order that he would not go unless he received written instructions. Grant then ordered Raleigh to go in person to deliver Grant's order, saying rather indignantly that if Wallace continued to refuse unless there were written orders, to write out the order for him. The situation was desperately urgent. Grant admonished him darkly, quote, See that you do not spare horse flesh. End quote. Even more amazingly, when Raleigh returned to where he had left Wallace's command, there was no trace of Wallace's forces, quote, except one baggage wagon that was just leaving, end quote. He asked the driver where Wallace was. The driver replied he went to the fight. Raleigh asked which road they took, and he indicated by pointing to the Purdy Road. After taking this road five or six miles, Raleigh says he found the rear of Wallace's division, quote, at rest, sitting on each side of the road, some with their arms stacked in the middle of the road. When I reached the head of the column, I found General Wallace sitting upon his horse, surrounded by his staff, some of whom were dismounted and holding their horses by the bridles. I rode up to General Wallace and communicated to him General Grant's orders as I had received them, and then told him that it had been reported to him, i.e. General Grant, that he had refused to march without written orders, at which he seemed quite indignant, saying that it was a damned lie that he had never refused to go without a written order, in proof of which he said, Here you find me on the road. 
to which I replied that I had certainly found him on a road, but I hardly thought it the road to Pittsburgh Landing. It certainly was not the road that I had come down from there on, and that I had traveled farther since I had left his camp than I had in coming from the battlefield to the camp, and, judging from the sound of the firing, we were still a long distance from the battlefield, to which the general replied that this was the road his cavalry had brought him, and the only road he knew anything about." End quote. In fact, Raleigh informed General Wallace, because of the ground they had already lost, the road he originally selected was leading his division behind enemy lines. Grant's staff all agreed that Wallace's pace was lazy and his attitude lax and unconcerned by the desperate nature of the situation bearing down upon Federal lines only miles away and indifferent to the crucial nature of his arrival. Grant, from his headquarters, a log house overlooking the landing, while eagerly waiting for his reinforcements, received the also long-awaited Major General Don Carlos Buell. Buell apparently did not have the same tenacity as Grant, which he'll later become so famous for in Virginia. According to Grant's staff officer John Rawlins, when Buell arrived, quote, among his first inquiries was, what preparations have you made for retreating? To which Grant replied, I have not yet despaired of whipping them, General. End quote. This was about 2 p.m. Then, just before 2.30 p.m., the Confederates experienced a crippling setback, which very likely saved the day for the Union. Rebel commander Albert Sidney Johnston, who, by all accounts, was personally leading and rousing the spirits of his troops at the vanguard of their advance, was struck by a bullet behind his knee while on the saddle of his horse. In a matter of moments, his boot filled with blood. He fell from his horse and quickly lost consciousness, never to recover. His femoral artery had been severed. He will be the highest-ranking commander on either side to fall during the entirety of the war. This moment was the zenith of the Confederate assault. Despite the brief lull in the action that followed from Johnston's death, the Confederates were still pressing their advantage, and the Federal resistance continued to buckle. At approximately 4 p.m., the entire division of General Prentiss, while attempting to retreat to the landing, having held the Confederates at bay for hours, found themselves surrounded by the rebels and were compelled to surrender. The rebels had seized Federal camps with all their commissary stores, ammunitions, and field artillery, and now they had seized an entire division of Grant's army. By this time, a literal army of stragglers had fled from the front lines to the Federal Command Center at Pittsburgh Landing and were cowering under the bluffs along the riverbank. Grant did everything he could to turn back the flood. He ordered Colonel Reed of the 15th Iowa, quote, to prevent all stragglers from returning from the battlefield to the landing and to hold ourselves as a reserve. The regiment was then advanced across the road to the right so as to stop the progress of the multitudes returning from the battlefield, which could only be done by threatening to shoot them down. Some of them were induced by threats and persuasions to fall into line, but most of them had the Bull Run story that their regiments were all cut to pieces and that they were the only survivors and nothing could be done with them but to stop their progress. End quote. As he arrived to the battlefield by steamboat, General Buell observed, quote, 
the throng of disorganized and demoralized troops increased continually by fresh fugitives from the battle, which steadily grew nearer the landing, and with these were mingled great numbers of teams, all striving to get as near as possible to the river. With few exceptions, all efforts to form the troops and move them forward to the fight utterly failed." End quote. The rebel forces were in sight of the Federals' last stand, overlooking the landing, where hundreds of stragglers were now cowering beneath the bluffs as the sunlight was beginning to wane in the west. Separating them from this last Federal position was a deep ravine with very steep sides. Federal artillery preyed upon the rebels as they attempted to cross this natural barrier. Additionally, by this time, the two Federal gunboats, Lexington and Tyler, which we encountered already as the gunboats that came to Florence two months prior in February after the fall of Fort Henry, were covering the Federal position by hurling shells into the advancing rebel lines. Grant gives the gunboats credit for helping to save the day from utter catastrophe, while rebel commander Braxton Bragg seems to have thought they were more of a nuisance than a real danger. Quote, they were covered by a battery of heavy guns, well served, and two gunboats, which now poured a heavy fire upon our supposed positions, for we were entirely hid by the forest. Their fire, though terrific in sound, and producing some consternation at first, did us no damage, as the shells all passed over and exploded far beyond our own positions." End quote. Other rebel commanders were far less glib about the destructiveness of the gunboats. Lieutenant Colonel Venable of the 5th Tennessee described the bombardment from the gunboats as, quote, unbearable, end quote. Patton Anderson, commanding the 2nd Brigade of Ruggles' position, describes the haranguing role of the gunboats at the ultimate Confederate position of the day, quote, the enemy's gunboats now opened fire. General Ruggles directed me to move forward a short distance, and by inclining to the right to gain a little hollow, which would probably afford better protection for my men against the shell than the position I then occupied, I gained the hollow and called a halt, ordering the men to take cover behind the hill and near a little ravine which traversed the hollow. We occupied this position some ten or fifteen minutes, when one of General Ruggles' staff directed me to retire to the enemy's camp beyond the range of his floating guns. In filing off from this position, several men were killed and many wounded by the exploding shells of the enemy. It was now twilight. End quote. As nightfall brought an end to the first day of the largest battle ever seen on the American continent, the exhausted Confederates made their way in the dark back to the captured Federal camps and availed themselves of the rations they found there. Most commanders mention the level of exhaustion of their troops and the fact that, owing to the desperate and incessant nature of the battle, they had nothing to eat all day. I found one exception, however, Colonel John A. Davis of the 43rd Illinois. Around 1 p.m., Davis found his troops scattered, out of ammunition, without a horse, and within half a mile of his regimental encampment, so he ordered his troops back to have lunch. He is the only one I've found who says they had lunch that first day. Throughout the night, the gunboats fired shells at regular intervals, which kept the Confederates from re receiving a restful sleep. As the Federal reinforcements from the Army of the Ohio and Wallace's missing division bolstered the Union morale and prepared to renew the conflict at dawn. And as it had done so many times of late, 
a severe thunderstorm indiscriminately drenched the opposing forces of the north and south and washed the blood-soaked ground. Join us next time as we discuss the federal counterattack on the morning of April 7th and the aftermath of the battle in the Tennessee Valley as the public, north and south, respond to the shock of this battle and the federal presence only continues to intensify north of the Tennessee River. Thank you so much for joining me.